welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Secret of the Samurai Sword by Phyllis A. Whitney. Volume 7, Chapter 15 Hero For a few moments, Celia wanted to forget about Kiyomisu, Gran, Stephen, Hero, and rush home as fast as she could go. But she would have to hide her impatience for now. There would be plenty of time for her to search later. As she and Hiro started back toward the main temple buildings, she tried to draw her companion out a little more. How's your grandfather today? she asked as an opening question. Hiro shook his head sadly. I'm saying prayer to Fudomio to give him strength in suffering, he said. You mean because of that samurai ghost and the sword? Hiro sucked in his breath. Yes, he said at length. If we can be finding sword, it will be a fine thing for my grandfather. But why? Why does the sword mean so much? He ordered it destroyed, didn't he? I have poor English, Hero said. I, I cannot explain. He had lost control of several letters, but he went on anyway, trying to esprain. Buddhist religion, religion, he said. He's kind, peaceful not hating. But Japanese also have Shinto, many kind of Shinto. Before the war, military government is making all people believe in state Shinto. State Shinto is wanting war. My father not like. like. My grandfather does not like. But war come for country and emperor. My father goes to fight. My father is sad. My grandfather is sad, and no more making pictures of swords and samurai fighting. He took off his glasses and began polishing them nervously with his handkerchief. But if your grandfather feels like that, then why does he want to find out what happened to the sword? Celia asked. I still don't understand. Sword is honor for family. Family, Hiro said, putting on his glasses again. He's no more for fighting. None of this was very clear from the American point of view, but as Celia was learning, you couldn't understand other people just from your own point of view. You had to make an attempt to get theirs. Anyway, the important thing seemed to be that Chintaro Sato was ill because he felt that his ancestor, the samurai, had come for the sword, which had probably been destroyed. But who was impersonating the samurai? Who could be playing such an unkind trick? Hiro, do you have any idea who would dress up like a samurai to fool your grandfather and go into the garden? She asked this suddenly, and Hiro looked as downright shocked as though she had taken complete leave of her senses. He shook his head again and said nothing at all. So too, like his grandfather, he believed that the thing was really a spirit rather than human. And how could you argue with someone who believed in spirits as easily as in reality? Another Japanese tour streamed past them just then, with Geita clattering over stones and earth. But Hiro was not watching the tour. His eyes had a faraway look. Last year, he said, my grandfather takes me on train to Hiroshima. Hiroshima? That was where the first terrible atomic bomb had fallen. Celia waited uneasily, and Hiro went on, struggling with his English, but managing somehow 
in the very earnestness of his manner to tell the story he wanted to tell. And as he spoke, Celia forgot the worn thatch of Kiyomisu's steeply pitched roofs and the courtyards and the thickly wooded hills. In her imagination, she could see another scene that Hera was building with his earnest words. He made her see now that in Hiroshima there stretched a great empty plain of earth where the bomb had fallen. In the center of the plain rose a modern museum where hundreds of relics and photographs of what had happened were collected. In museum, Hero said, there is bamboo with gray shadow of leaves upon the stalk, but no leaves to throw shadows. Celia shivered. She knew he meant that the shadows had been imprinted on those bamboo stalks by the action of the blast. He went on, and she could imagine solemn visitors moving through the museum where no one laughed or smiled or talked very loudly. There were Americans there, too, elbow to elbow with the Japanese. But no more enemy, Hiro said. Only war is enemy, enemy of all people. He told her then about the most moving moment of all, when he and his grandfather had left the museum and walked across the empty dirt plain to the place where the peace monument stood. Here rose a canopy of concrete in modern design, sheltering the bronze casket beneath it. In the casket, Hero said, were thousands of slips of paper bearing the names of all who had died when the bomb fell. One after another, Japanese came to the railing before the tomb, placed sticks of incense reverently in containers in sand to burn in honor of the dead, and then knelt to pray. Far in the background rose the domed skeleton of one shattered building that had been left standing as a reminder of what the rest had been after the bomb had fallen. All this in the heart of a new modern city, a bustle with traffic its citizens busy and happy, and strangely enough, with no resentment left against those who had dropped the bomb. Hero translated the characters on the casket softly into English, and his pronunciation did not falter. Sleep undisturbed, for we shall not repeat this error. There were tears in Celia's eyes. It was as if she herself had been to Hiroshima and stood before that tomb, weeping, as many who came there wept, American as well as Japanese. Japanese believe those dying in violence do not sleep well, Hiro said. But in Hiroshima we tell them to sleep, for this shall never happen again. He looked at her earnestly, almost pleadingly. Japan makes error, America makes error. But these words do not mean to apologize for wrong. By we, monument means mankind. It is man who must never make this error again. You understand, Syria-san, is not for fighting my grandfather once sword. I understand, she said gently. Gentaro Sato could not ever think again of a sword for fighting. More than any other people on earth, the Japanese had reason to hate and fear war. They wanted the people of other nations to hate it, too, and share their longing for peace. She and Hiro were silent as they went back to look for Stephen.
Her brothers saw them before they saw him, and he came toward them excited and triumphant. You missed all the fun. You should have seen the fat fellow in a kimono who went through here a few minutes ago. I could tell by the way his hair was pulled back in that funny top knot that he was a sumo wrestler. He must be famous in Japan because the kids were running up to get his autograph, and the grown-ups were all snapping pictures of him. Stephen gave them a comical imitation of how the enormous fellow had looked, striding along, glancing to neither left nor right, very important with his huge stomach stuck way out. Even Hiro recognized the impersonation and laughed out loud, his sober mood thrust aside for the moment. Celia was glad to have Stephen do all the talking. It gave her a little more time to return from the solemnity of Hiroshima. I got a picture of him right beside the dragon fountain. He glanced at his wristwatch. Hey, it's time to meet Gran now. Where's this other dragon that Gran was talking about? Hiro knew the place that Gran meant. As they walked toward a stone torii and mounted a flight of stone steps, he told them the story that Lafcadio Hearn, the famous writer who would become a Japanese citizen in his later life, had written about this dragon long ago. Hearn had told how it could be heard weeping every night, and how in the morning the floor beneath was always wet with tears. Two stone temple dogs stood at the head of the steps, and they went between them toward a small open pavilion. It was no more than a roof with a square expanse of floor beneath. Celia stood where she could peer upward at the ceiling and see the faint white markings that was all that remained of a very old dragon painting. The dragon coiled in a circle around the ceiling, but it was not crying now, and since it was not morning, there was no dampness on the floor, only some smudged markings in the dust, left there perhaps by the dragon tears, Celia thought whimsically. It was here that Gran found them, very pleased over her interview. She had, she said, sat on the tatami in the priest's living quarters, while other members of his household watched television in the next room. He had been very gracious and had answered all of her questions and asked some of his own. How do you like Kiyomitsu? Gran asked. You'll have to come back again and stay for a while longer, but at least you've had a glimpse of it ahead of the crowds that will arrive for the festivals next week. On the way out, they stopped to have a priest mark their stampu books with a Kiyomisu seal, a tiny picture in maroon of the pagoda and temples. The sun came out briefly low in the sky, shining on the peaked roofs, turning stone lanterns to gold, touching the fountain dragon's gleaming scales. There's no place like Kyoto, Grand said, drawing them to a stop on the steps going down, where they could see the whole city spread out before them. Aren't you proud to live here, Hiro? Hiro nodded, then glanced at Gran almost shyly. Is it better in the United States? In New York? In San Francisco? Not better, Gran said. Only different. I wish to be going to America, Hiro said firmly. I wish to be learning the good English and going to America. Celia looked at him curiously. Behind his glasses, his eyes were bright with eagerness and longing. But you wouldn't leave Japan for good, the way Sumiko's father did, would you? I will not be leaving for good, he answered promptly. Japan today is becoming fine modern country, but I am wishing to see best things in America, 
Then I am bringing home new ideas for Japan. That's a fine plan, Gran said. Perhaps if you make your grandfather understand what you want, he will help you to go. If you come to the States, Stephen said, you'll have to visit us in Berkeley. Hiro looked overjoyed, and Celia had an idea that this earnest schoolboy would eventually manage what he hoped to do. She was glad, however, when they left the temple steps and started down the street of little shops. Now all she wanted was to get home and find Sumiko. She did not want to search for the key alone. Sumiko had to come with her. Chapter 16 The Search for the Key When they got home, Hiro went inside to see if Sumiko could come over to Celia's right after dinner. He brought back word that it would be all right, and Celia sighed with relief. She couldn't stand to wait until tomorrow, when the answer to so many things might be right at hand. Things she wanted to share with Sumiko. Then, while she was eating dinner, the rain, which had threatened on and off all day, came down heavily and looked as though it would be an all-night affair. Celia groaned at the sound, and Gran looked at her questioningly. Plan spoiled? she asked. Celia nodded. Sumiko and I were going for, for a walk after dinner, and now we can't. What's so important about a walk? Stephen asked. You could walk any old time. Why don't you stay inside tonight? Celia shook her head, miserable with disappointment, and Gran looked sympathetic. Why don't you go for your walk anyway? she said. If it's so important, you could put on raincoats, wear gaita on your bare feet to keep out the mud, and carry Japanese umbrellas. I think there are some old ones around the house. After all, you haven't had a real taste of Japan until you've gone for a walk in the rain under a Japanese umbrella. The light came back into Celia's face, and she smiled at her grandmother. After dinner, Stephen went off to his room to work on his package of sorid motors with which he was building a battleship. Sorid motors was really what it said on the box, but the term was plainly an adaptation of solid models. At least he was busy and out of the way. He wouldn't be walking around in the rain himself. Sumiko dashed across the street wearing her green American slicker, and she was willing enough to go for the planned walk. Tani, who would never have carried an old-fashioned umbrella herself, found two discarded ones for them to use. At the entryway, the girl stepped into rain gaita, which had wooden strips on the bottoms, a bit higher than other clogs. The umbrellas were made of strong oiled paper, stretched over a multitude of bamboo ribs. They were bigger than American umbrellas, giving the bearer a good circumference of dry area underneath. As the girl stepped into the downpour, the rain on the tightly stretched membrane of paper sounded to Celia like the beating of drums. She did not explain what she meant to do until they were climbing the already muddy alley toward the woods. Then she had to shout above the roaring and spattering of the rain on the umbrellas to make Sumiko hear her. Remember the picture of Fudomio? she shouted. And the other things in the lacquer box? The cardboard key and the ginkgo leaf? Sumiko, keeping her distance because of the width of the umbrellas, nodded vigorously. 
Hero says the ginkgo leaf is the crest of your family. So, don't you see? The little stone man is also Fudo, and if I'm right... But they had reached the edge of the woods where the path began, and now they had to go single file. It would get dark early tonight because of the rain, and the woods were already gloomier than she had expected. Always before, she had seen them in bright daylight or with sunshine slanting through the leaves. Now the trees looked forbiddingly dense and dark, the wet trunks gleaming like black ebony. Not for anything would she have come here alone at this time, but Subiko did not seem worried by the fading light or by the mysterious way in which the woods seemed to close about them as they took the left-hand branch that led to the little clearing. It was only a short distance, but this path was overgrown with weeds that twined wetly about their feet and left green stains on their bare ankles. It was a good thing they were wearing gaita, which could walk over anything. The stone man loomed at them with breathless suddenness. At one moment the trees and brush hid him, and then there he was beside the path, almost as if he had leapt from behind a tree to stand there screaming at them in the rain. The cap of moss that covered his head was a wet, bright green, and raindrops were splintering on the tip of his pointed sword. But if he really screamed at them now, they'd never hear it, Celia thought, what with all this uproar on their umbrellas. She tilted her umbrella back so she could look up and then called to Sumiko. I knew there was a ginkgo tree here. That's what gave me the idea. I think the things in the lacquer box were meant to point the way to something. Only... Nobody recognized the fact, and they've just been left there unnoticed all these years. The ginkgo tree stood high above them, tall and dripping, pointing its branches to the sky behind the stone image. Gingerly, Celia went up to the crumbling steps and walked between the snarling little dogs. She had to stifle the uneasy feeling that they might snap at her with their ugly fangs. But Sumiko was there, and plainly Sumiko was not afraid. Maybe you're right, Sumiko said. But what are you going to do? From the pocket of her slicker, Celia drew the garden trowel she had picked up before she left the house. We're going to dig at the foot of the ginkgo tree. If you'll hold the umbrella over me, I'll start digging. Sumiko looked astonished, but interested, and she offered no objections. She held an umbrella in each hand, and beneath this double shelter, Celia squatted at the foot of the tree and thrust her trowel into the ground. The earth was damp and soft, muddy on the surface, and gave way easily as she dug. But the task seemed suddenly much less simple than she imagined. If her notion was right in the first place, and the combination of Fudo picture, cardboard key, and ginkgo leaf indicated this as the spot where the real key might be hidden, she still could not know the exact place in which to dig. How deep might the key be buried? In fact, how could she know exactly what she was digging for, since the key might well have been placed in some container first? Rest a while and let me try, Sumiko said after a time. At least she wasn't impatient or skeptical. She didn't say, as Stephen might have, that all this was nonsense, just another crazy dream. Celia changed places with Sumiko, but now, in spite of the umbrellas, they were getting wet and rather muddy, and every minute the woods were growing darker, until in a short while there would be no light at all. 
Celia suspected that Gran, in her generous suggestion about a walk in the rain, had not exactly pictured what they were doing. But just as she was about to give up and tell Sumiko that they'd better go home, the other girl struck something with the point of the trowel. She dug earnestly now, and Celia bent over her, trying to make out what made that metallic ring when the trowel struck it. The last rays of gray daylight touched something in the hole with an unexpected gleam of golden light. What is it? What is it? Celia cried beside herself now with excitement. Sumiko looked up at her and smiled. Here, I'll take the umbrella again. It was your idea. You ought to dig it out. So again they traded places, though this time Celia didn't care whether she was out of the wet or not. She could feel the cool drops from the umbrella spokes dripping down her neck, and she couldn't have cared less. For now the trowel was thrusting back the muddy earth to reveal the shape of a small bright box in the hole. Even with grime clinging to its sides and green stuff all over it, the metal shone through. It's brass, I think, Sumiko cried. A little brass box. Celia reached into the hole and pulled it out. It was only a few inches long and not quite so many wide. Her fingers could feel the engraving on the lid, but now it was too dark to see anything here beneath the trees. With one wooden gaita, Celia stamped the earth back into the hole beneath the tree and then hurried away from the stone man, who was now a black shadow, among other black shadows in the woods. She was almost fearful that he might reach out with his sword and pull them back, angry at this robbing of his treasure. But nothing happened and they clattered down the hill as fast as they could go, and were soon out in the open again, where the daylight had not altogether vanished. Open it, Sumiko pleaded, taking Celia's umbrella again. Let's see what you've got there. The lid stuck fast, but Celia managed to pry it up with the muddy edge of the trowel. Inside were several objects, carefully wrapped in oil paper, but this was no place to examine such small treasures. We'd better take this home to my room and look at it there, Celia said. We'd better not unwrap whatever it is out here in the wet. Sumiko agreed, and they clattered down the hill to the Bronson Gate and hurried through. Lamplight in the house looked cheerful and welcoming as they reached the entryway. There the overhang of the roof sheltered them, and when they put the umbrellas down they felt practically deafened by the silence. Tani came hurrying out to exclaim in dismay over their damp condition. She quickly brought a basin of water to sponge the mud and grass stains from their feet, and she hung up their wet slickers to dry. As they passed the living room, Gran looked up from the book she was reading, but she asked no questions. Celia kept the little box hidden under her arm until they were both in her room. Then they dropped down upon the cushions to examine it. Beyond the fusuma, Celia could hear Stephen still working on his sorid molder, and was glad he was busy. The little brass box had green scales of mold and vertigris embedded in the chrysanthemum pattern on its lid, but it didn't seem too much worse for wear. Inside were three little packages wrapped in oil paper. Celia chose one at random and unrolled the outer wrapping. There was still another inner wrapping of thin tissue and she unrolled this too, while she and Sumiko bent over the small thing in her hand. In a moment it was revealed, a bit of gold and silver in the form of a tiny dragon, 
with its head turned as if it were looking backwards. Swiftly, Celia unwrapped a second package to show a second dragon, brother to the first, though individual in every detail. The Manuki, she whispered softly, and Sumiko nodded and touched one of them respectfully with her finger. These must be from the samurai sword. Sumiko nodded. The sword decorations were done by great artists in the making of swords. Each sword was different from any other. These are the same dragons as those in the drawings you found, aren't they? Celia, do you suppose whatever is left of the sword is buried up there too? I don't know, Celia said. She reached for the last small package and knew by its shape and feel that this was what she had expected to find. She unrolled the strips of paper about it and revealed a tarnished metal key. In a moment, she had brought the cardboard key from the lacquer box and compared the two. This was plainly the original from which the pattern had been made. It's the key to the bomb shelter, Celia whispered. I'm sure that's what it is. But why would anybody hide it up there? Sumiko protested. That doesn't make any sense. Maybe it does. But how? If anyone wanted to open the door to the shelter and didn't have a key, he could easily have the lock changed or call in a locksmith to make a new key. Celia balanced the key in her hand thoughtfully. Maybe it wasn't hit just to keep people away from the bomb shelter. What if it's only meant to point the way to something else, something in the shelter? Sumiko was so still that not even her ponytail jiggled. She stared at Celia with her black eyes wide and attentive. Well, it won't take us long to find out. Let's go and try it. Celia was sorely tempted, but after a moment's hesitation, she shook her head. It's still pouring rain, and this time there would be questions if we wanted to go. She broke off because Stephen had come out of his room and was standing on the veranda, watching them. Swiftly, Celia closed her fingers over the key, glad that her hand was hidden from her brother. Hi, Sumiko, he said. What did you two go out in the rain for? What are you whispering about? I could hear you through the fusuma. Buzz, buzz, buzz. Sumiko said nothing, and Celia giggled nervously. But Stephen had spied the manuki, and he stepped onto the tatami and picked them up curiously. Clearly, however, they meant nothing to him, and after a minute he dropped them and went off downstairs, muttering that he was hungry. Celia and Sumiko looked at each other for a moment and then laughed softly together. However, Stephen's interest in what they were up to stopped any further plans for the evening. I'll try the key later, Celia said. I'll wait till no one is watching, and then I'll open the door. You sound awfully sure, Sumiko said. Celia smiled and said nothing. She was sure of the identity of this key, clear through to her fingertips, but she didn't want to say anything more about it. The proof would have to wait until tomorrow. She had a feeling that she wouldn't want to explore a dank, dark bomb shelter at night anyway. It hadn't been open for years, and goodness knew what could be found down there. She went downstairs with Sumiko and saw her to the door. Then she returned to her room, the key hidden tight in her hand. Morning was going to be a long time in coming. Chapter 17 Festival of the Lanterns
The garden was fresh with the smell of earth and wet shrubbery after the rain, but the mists had fled, and early morning sun made the bamboo shadows long and thin across the earth. Celia did not stop to dress, lest Stephen hear her and waken too, but came down in her pajamas and slipped into Gaeta to cross the garden. What she could see of the Sato house was as quiet as her own. No one appeared to be watching from the upper veranda. The key sagged heavily in the upper pocket of her pajamas. She pulled it out with fingers that were all too eager, and it slipped out of her hand and dropped into the mud. A moment was lost in cleaning it off with the help of a few leaves, but then she was ready. Bending before the low door of the shelter, she fit the key into the lock. Because it was tarnished and a little rusty, it did not slip in easily, but she jiggled it this way and that, and in a moment it was in its place. Her guess had surely been right. This was the lock for which the key had been made. It turned easily enough, though the squeak startled her. She put her hand in the knob and turned. Nothing at all happened. She pushed with the weight of her body and then tugged, but the door still resisted her. It occurred to her that in the Orient things were often backwards from the way they were at home. Perhaps it was the same with keys. So she had simply locked the door when she thought she was unlocking it. Carefully she turned the key the other direction, and again there was a faint screeching of metal and the click of the bolt moving in the mechanism. This time she turned the knob with more confidence, but the door still did not budge. Nothing she did helped in the least. This was certainly the right key and the right lock. The only contrary thing was that the door remained firmly locked. That didn't make any sense, but it was clearly the case. Somehow or other, the door was still locked. She glanced up at the house and wondered for a moment if she should go and get Stephen. But Stephen would laugh at her for wanting to get inside an old bomb shelter. No... She would wait and consult with Sumiko about this. Between them, they ought to be able to think of some way to get this door open. At breakfast, she ate in gulps, hardly able to conceal her impatience. But later, when she went over to the Sato Gate to talk to Sumiko, her friend shook her head in a worried way. Grandfather is up, she whispered, though he really shouldn't be. This is the beginning of the Feast of the Dead, and he believes he's going to talk to the spirits of his ancestors. Hero and the others, even my mother, are all behaving as if it were a perfectly everyday matter. Shh! Somebody's calling me! Sumiko ran back into the house, and Celia went home in a troubled state, forgetting the locked door for a moment. What was the Feast of the Dead, she asked Gran. And why did Gentaro Sato think that he had to get up for it? Gran pulled a plump red guidebook from the bookcase. This will tell you all about the Bond Festival, she said. The Japanese give it several names, but the one I like the best is Festival of the Lanterns. It's a very beautiful and moving ceremony. Tonight we'll visit one of the cemeteries and see what's happening. Celia took the guidebook outside and sat on a rock by the fish pond, reading. Once in a while she glanced in puzzlement at the shelter door, but since she could do nothing about it for now, 
she allowed her interest to be caught by the book. For the coming three days, it seemed, the Japanese would invite the dead of every family to return to Earth for a visit. They believed that the spirit world was never very far away, and that at this time the beloved dead could be led from the cemeteries where they slept and made comfortable and welcome in the homes they had left. There was one thing, Celia thought, recalling Sumiko, to read about this and regarded as a quaint Japanese custom, but perhaps quite something else when a girl as American as Sumiko was expected to take a serious part in it. When she returned the book, she told Gran about how upset Sumiko had seemed. Stephen heard them talking and offered his own comment. Trouble with Sumiko is, she's neither fish nor fowl, he said. Gran took off her blue-rimmed glasses and twirled them by their stems. No, I don't think that's true. I believe that her difficulty is that she's both fish and fowl, and that's a pretty difficult sort of creature to be. Twice that day, when she had a chance, Celia tried the key in the door of the bomb shelter, each time hoping she had somehow been mistaken. But it was no use. The door wouldn't open. That night, she and Stephen and Graham walked over to a cemetery on a nearby hillside, where many Japanese were gathering. The graves were set very close together, and the whole place was prickly with the lettered name sticks thrust up behind every grave, giving the death names of those who were gone. Tonight, all the cemetery glowed with light because every family had lit white lanterns and hung them above the graves. Hundreds of sticks of incense had been lit, too, and clouds of smoke drifted of the glow of white light, the aromatic fragrance permeating all of Kyoto. Late in the evening, the procession's home began. For now, the visiting spirits must be led courteously along the way, their path lit by the many white lanterns, the rough places in the road pointed out so they would not stumble. Everywhere sliding doors stood wide, and small welcome fires were kindled before the houses as those who were loved came home. It seemed to Celia that the people she saw taking part in the festival were happy, and that everyone seemed kind and very considerate. But when she saw Sumiko walking at the end of the Sato procession, looking rebellious and unbelieving, she knew that things were not going well with her friend. Gran noticed Celia's concern. When the three days are over, we'll invite Sumiko to dinner. I'd like to talk to her about several things. After the festival, Gentaro Sato did not return to his bed, but sat upon the veranda of his house, looking wan and thin as he stared into space for hours at a time. By now the Satos seemed to take the friendship between Celia and Sumiko for granted, so when Sumiko was invited to dinner, no one objected. The Nisei girl wore her best American nylon dress, and the soft blue color was becoming. How nice you look, Sumiko, Gran told her, but I'd like to see you in a kimono sometime. Thank you, Sumiko said, but made no comment about wearing a kimono. Celia knew she hated the idea. Hiro had been invited, too, and after dinner 
he and Stephen were going to see another samurai movie down on Kawaramachi. Satsuko made wonderful sukiyaki right on the table in Gran's electric frying pan, and they all ate with chopsticks. Hiro was full of talk about more festivals to come. Early in August would come the night of Daimonji, when the great bonfires would be built on the mountainsides. All will be very beautiful, Hiro said. Very fine for Americans to see. Sumiko ate her beef and vegetables in silence and had little to say. Celia knew her friend was still troubled and wished she could help her. After dinner, when Hiro and Stephen had left, Gran slipped a hand through each girl's arm and drew them into the living room. They sat in comfortable rattan chairs with the soft glow of Japanese lamps about the room. And now, gently, without seeming to pry, Gran got Sumiko to talk about the things that were worrying her. It seemed that the last three days had been especially distressing. Imagine! Sumiko cried. Grandfather really believes that the spirits of members of his family came home with us from the cemetery and lived in his house again. He talked to his son, Hiro's father, as though he were really there, and even to my father. Once I went upstairs and heard him in his studio. He was painting a picture and talked to his sons at the same time. I don't like this. It's nothing but foolish superstition. Do you think we never talk to those who are gone? Gran asked. Sumiko stared at her in puzzled surprise. Quickly, Gran went on. There's never a day that passes. I don't remember my husband, Celia's grandfather. Sometimes I've talked to him about my problems, although he was really here. And more than once I've had the strange feeling he was advising me. There's something somewhere that understands my words, Sumiko. People aren't really so different, you know. It's only customs that seem strange to you who have other customs. If you'd been brought up in Japan, you'd accept these things just as Hiro does. Sumiko clutched her fist together in her lap, and Celia was startled by the sudden intensity in her friend's voice. Sumiko had never been trained to hide her emotions as Japanese girls were. But I wasn't brought up in Japan, she cried. I'm not Japanese. I never will be. Gran reached out and covered Sumiko's defiant hands with her own. It was a gentle, quieting gesture. That's where you're wrong, Gran said. And I believe you're old enough and smart enough to stop shadowboxing and accept what's really true. Shadowboxing? Sumiko repeated blankly. That's right. Fighting shadows. Trying to make something true that isn't. Trying to pretend that you're not Japanese as well as American. I didn't ask to be born the way I am, Sumiko said almost sullenly, and now she would not look at Gran in the eye. Celia twisted her handkerchief together uncomfortably, all her sympathy with Sumiko. She hadn't dreamed that Gran was usually so understanding would talk to anybody like this. Not one of us asked to be born, Gran told Sumiko firmly. Not one of us asked for what he regards as his special handicap, but every one of us has something he fights and thinks is wrong in himself. When I was a little girl, I was the homeliest child in my grade in school. 
and I suffered from it terribly, until I grew old enough to realize I could make my own face the way I thought and the way I acted. Both girls looked at Gran in astonishment. She had so much life and eagerness and kindness in her face that Celia had somehow taken it for granted from the first that she was very attractive. And indeed she was. Gran's eyes twinkled as she went on. You can take Celia for another example, she said. Celia stiffened and Sumiko threw her a quick look. Celia has everything, Sumiko said. She's so pretty and fair-haired. She really is American and... Gran broke in with affection for her granddaughter in her voice. I agree, but Arcelia has the curious notion that people think she's not very smart, and that her brother, she looks up to, doesn't care about her very much. It's probably true that he doesn't care about her consciously right now. That's because he's busy with other things and takes her for granted. And he's at the teasing age that boys reach. But with another part of him that he isn't aware of, I'll wager he thinks his sister is just about the nicest girl ever. Celia felt as though she was blushing clear to her toes. She could even feel silly tears prickling back of her eyes. Because Gran knew. Gran had understood better than Celia had understood herself. You see, Gran went on, Celia has to live with her handicap. That is what she regards as hers for the moment. Until in a year or so, she'll find out it doesn't matter, because the things we think are handicaps are only something to be lived with until they are overcome. We have to say to ourselves, as everyone must, this is the way it is. I accept and forget it. I'll go on from here and spend no more time moaning about what can't be helped, unless I can help it. But... But how can my handicap ever be overcome? Simical wailed. Gran put her arms on her knees and leaned forward earnestly. She held Simico's dark eyes steadily with her own gray ones. It will begin to be overcome the minute you truly accept the fact that you are both American and Japanese, and that because this is so, you have something especially valuable to give to Japan and maybe to give to America, too. You don't know, Sumiko cried. The Japanese don't like Nisei. They think we're being superior. They think we're American, that we look down on them, and... And hasn't that been true? With you, I mean? Gran asked. Sumiko opened her mouth to answer and then paused. Well, maybe it has. Only I didn't see it that way. Gran laughed softly, the wrinkles about her eyes deepening. Then you're not even being a good American, are you? Most Americans these days don't believe in prejudice, you know. We hate it and fight it in our own country and in ourselves. Sumiko, don't you see that you can't be a good anything until you're both a good American and a good Japanese? Of course, that's a harder job than most of us have, but I think you're a smart enough girl to manage it. Both? Simico echoed in a puzzled voice. Yes, Gran said. I have several Nisei friends here in Japan who are well accepted and well liked because they've earned the right to be. That's the only way any of us can ever expect to be liked. 
for what we really are. Quite suddenly, Sumiko put her head down in her hands and began to cry softly. I miss my father so much, she choked. I can't talk to my mother any more because she's gone completely Japanese, but I could talk to him. You still can, Gran said. You can talk to him just as your grandfather talked to him, and you can hear what he'd say to you in your own mind and heart. You know the things he might tell you, don't you? If you're honest with yourself, all you have to do is stop fighting yourself and listen. Perhaps this is something people out here have that we lack. They never forget those who have gone before them. They go right on feeling close to them and making them part of their lives. Sumiko wiped her tears away. You're young enough to have plenty of time for thinking. I know this will work out, but now let's go for a walk and catch the last bit of daylight. As they went out, Celia remembered the key and the door that wouldn't open. But Sumiko was thoughtful and quiet, and Celia knew this wasn't the time to bring the subject up. Yet she could not be rid of her own feeling that the door was still important, important somehow to them all. For the next few weeks, festivals went on constantly, all over Kyoto. The people seemed to enjoy this season so much they were reluctant to tie their activities to the prescribed days of the celebration alone. Consequently, the festivities stretched on and overlapped at both ends of the season. One night, Celia and Sumiko, Gran, and Stephen attended an informal street dance that started up not far from their home. Hiro was off on affairs of his own, and so not with them. Overhead, bright stars shone in a windy sky. Lanterns swayed, sending flickering light and shadows over the gay scene. There were more kimonos out there than usual, and the girls looked like bright butterflies as they followed the pattern of the dancing. That night there were no strangers. Hands were extended and welcomed to take them into the dancing circle. Laughter at mistakes was good-natured, and steps were eagerly shown to those foreigners who wanted to take part in the Japanese festivities. An old Victrola played Japanese songs over and over again, and everyone joined hands in a sort of snake dance up and down the street. Rain had held off, and tonight's high wind swept the mists away and sent clouds scudding across the sky so that lights sparkled with an intense brilliance, and there was a tingle of excitement in the air. It had been a day of running around for Celia, and since Gran and Stephen wanted to stay longer, Celia and Sumiko started home ahead of the others. As they wound their way up the hill, they found their own street nearly deserted, what with everyone being out where the fun was going on. When they reached Celia's house, she was just about to bid Sumiko good night and unlock the gate when she heard a sound across the street in the direction of the Sato house. Something prompted her to draw Sumiko back into the shadow of the gateway. The Sato house was dark except for a light burning upstairs in the artist's rooms. But as they watched, someone darted out the gate and started up the hill in a great hurry. It was Hiro, and he was moving so quickly and furtively that the girls watched him in surprise. He seemed to be holding something near his body, as if to hide it from view. 
but as he turned the corner up near the wooded hillside, Celia saw that the thing he was carrying looked like a sword. But what in the world was Hero doing with a sword? And why was he behaving in such a queer fashion? What's he up to? Sumiko murmured. What's that thing he's carrying? Celia shook her head, but she wondered if he could have found the old sword his father had been told to destroy. Was he perhaps taking it up to the little stone god in the woods? Such an action might well fit in with Japanese behavior. I don't think we'd better follow him, Sumiko said, but I'm sure going to ask him what he was doing when he comes home. They said goodnight then, and Sumiko went across the street. Celia unlocked her own gate just as a sudden gust of wind tore along the hill and fairly blew her into the yard. A light burned in Setsuko's quarters, but Celia didn't go into the house at once. Instead, she walked around the side to the windy garden behind and looked carefully about in the reflection of light from the house. As far as she knew, the samurai had not appeared since the night when the two boys had watched for him. Probably they had given the masquerader a real scare, and he had not dared to return. But she still liked to look when she had a chance, and to make sure nothing else had been dropped as that arrow had been. As she went past the bomb shelter, she couldn't resist trying the doorknob the way she usually did, even though she knew it was foolishness. But this time, the feeling of the knob in her hand surprised her. It actually felt as though the door might open and at once she tried the knob again, and it turned easily in her hand, and the door to the bomb shelter pulled wide open. <laughs>